But I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16. We're in week four of our elementary series where we walk through the book of Leviticus. Leviticus on the lawn, we call it. And uh, it's just been, it's been a lot of fun to walk through this book of the Bible because truth be told, my concern pastorally is that many of you look to this book of the Bible with dread. You, as you come to it in your morning devotions, it feels so far removed from you and you have a hard time wrapping your head around it. So my hope and prayer is that by the time we're done this series, you'll see that Leviticus is a treasure trove of gospel goodness because it is. It is. And we talked about last week how these things that we're reading, they're, they're meant to be immersive. So we're reading about sacrifices and ceremonies that are, they're not just things that the Israelites were to hear. They're things that the Israelites were to touch and to smell and to taste. And in all of that immersive experience, they learn the lesson. And so once again, as we walk through the text today, I'm going to do my best to immerse you into this. And I'll tell you today, as we look at Leviticus 16, we're coming to, well, all of the Bible is sacred ground. But this in particular is a sacred, sacred ceremony. One commentator notes, without question, the Day of Atonement was at the heart of Israel's calendar and life. This is the heart of it. This is the most important day for the Jews as they come together to worship. The Day of Atonement. That's what we're unpacking today. And this is particularly relevant for us. I want to tell you that off the top. We're going to walk through some ceremonies that are going to feel foreign. They're going to feel odd. But I want you to hear this right away. This speaks directly to our lives today. And really, this ceremony, if you want to summarize it very quickly, what happens in this ceremony is it exposes this grand question and it presents God's grand answer. The question is this, what is wrong with the world? You realize something is wrong with this world. You know, here we are, we're in this field and it's sunny and it doesn't feel like anything's wrong with the world. But, but just a few days ago, a tornado struck down and ripped apart houses and roofs flew off and families were taken from their homes. You realize right now in South Africa, there's another riot, rebellion, chaos, and, and that was happening just south of the border just a little while ago. And it's going to happen again. Something is wrong with the world. You look at the newspaper, sometimes you look in your home. Let's be honest, you look in your heart. Something's wrong. What is it? That's the question that's presented here in this text. And, and the answer is, is presented. What's wrong with the world is sin. What's wrong with the world is that we were made to be in relationship with our great and glorious God. But we sinned and our sin caused this great divide, this great separation. So this past week we were doing Bible memory with the kids. And each day we would walk them through this diagram and it's a helpful diagram for kids, but let's be honest, we're all just big kids. So I should have just drawn the diagram for you. I feel like it would be helpful for us. Very simple. On one side, you've got God. And, and that's where we're supposed to be. You know, imagine a little happy, smiling man. We're supposed to be right there in the presence of God. That's where the Bible begins. That's where the Bible ends. That's where we should be. But there's a problem. There's this great chasm now that's been created because of our sin and our rebellion. See, God is holy and he can't be with our sin and rebellion. He's too pure to look on evil. He, he can't be with it. And so on the other side of this chasm, there's us where we are today, apart from God. You can imagine a smiley face on this man because something is wrong. Something is broken. What we need then is a way to bridge this chasm, a way to be in right relationship with God. In this ceremony... 
The Israelites were presented with the problem and the solution. Year after year, this, this drama was played out before them. And so we're going to turn our attention to it today. And by God's grace, we're going to see what they saw. In order to do that, just a real quick definition of atonement. I've said that word about three or four times now, and maybe you don't know what it means. Uh, this brilliant commentator, L. Michael Morales, I found him to be so helpful as I've studied for the series. He gives this definition that feels too simple to be helpful, and yet, and yet it's helpful. It's true. Here's his definition. Atonement is reconciliation, at one and that at one mint, I know some, maybe you're rolling your eyes, oh, that's too easy. No, you know what? It's, it's good and helpful. Lock that away. What is atonement? At one mint. Making us one with God. Bridging the great divide and bringing us back into relationship. That's what we're talking about today. And so we're going to walk through this entire text, 34 verses, um, but we're going to break this into bite-sized pieces. And what we're going to do is we're going to ask this one overarching question. What does the law teach us about atonement? As we walk through all of these details, I'd say there are five important, practical, glorious lessons that we're going to learn here. So we're going to learn our first lesson as we read from verses 1 all the way to the end of verse 13. So look with me now to the word of God and hear his holy, inspired, living and active word to us today. Leviticus 16, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bowl as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bowl as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. All right. So we got a lot to unpack there. But rest assured, don't tap out. I can, some of you, you know, I can realize you're hearing these details and you're wondering, whoa. And you're wondering how, oh great, another page. The wind is not helpful today, but we're going to get there. You're hearing all these details and you're wondering how you're going to track along. The, the ceremony itself is actually, it's, 
relatively basic. So we're going to hear about these four animals involved in the ceremony. There's a ram, or there's a bull, and that's offered for the sin of Aaron. He's got to deal with his sin before he goes before God. And then there are two goats, and he casts lots. So you can imagine someone rolling a dice. So he rolls a dice, and one goat is set apart for one offering, and one goat is set apart for the other. And then at the end, there's a ram, and that's kind of the celebratory whole burnt offering. That's the time when you celebrate and say, God, we are completely and totally yours. Burn the whole thing up. Send it up to the Lord. We are your people. So there's four animals in this ceremony, and we're going to unpack those pieces, and, and, and it's all going to make sense, I promise. But before we do that, the first lesson we learn here is that atonement demands humility. Atonement, for us to be at one with God, it, it demands humility from us. And so again, let's try to immerse ourselves once again. Let's try to engage our imaginations. We talked last week about the tabernacle complex. And so we talked about how it was, it was a wide space. So imagine this field is like the tabernacle complex. It was a wide space like this. And along the outskirts of the field, there were these curtains that were up. The curtains were guarded by Levites with spears to make sure that nobody entered unworthily. It's a sacred place. And when it was your turn to enter into the tabernacle complex, you'd, you'd go through the curtains and there would be an altar in the center for the sacrifices. And there would be a wash basin where the sacrifices would be washed. And then there was the tent of meeting, the glorious tent of meeting. And the high priest and his family went in there, but you never did. So we talked about all of that last week. This week, we're stepping into the tent of meeting. And as we go into that tent in the center of the complex, there's a curtain. And that curtain at behind it is a place called the Holy of Holies. And that was a place that not even the high priest could enter. In that place was stored the Ark of the Covenant. So if you've seen Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you've, you've seen this, this box, right? And so in your head, you're picturing this box. I think a lot of us, as we think of, it's, right, it's this big golden box, which is true-ish. But, but don't think about it as a box anymore, because that's not what it was. The ark represented the throne of God. It was, it was God's footstool. In our text today, it's referred to as, as the mercy seat. And so that ark represented the, the very throne of God, which means the holy of holies, the place where God's presence tangibly dwelt with his people. It was like a shadow of the throne room of God. The king, the great and glorious king, was living with his people. But you didn't go into the king's throne room. Sacred, holy ground. Except once a year. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was allowed to enter in. He'd enter into the throne room. Psalm 99.1 describes this, this, the glorious cherubim and the throne and the ark. He says, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The cherubim were like golden angels that were carved onto the ark. They point your attention back to Genesis when they were cast out of the garden. And you remember the angels were guarding the entrance? Well, here the angels are guarding over top of the ark, saying, this is the king. You don't get to come before him. That was the place. And on the day of atonement, that one day, the high priest was permitted to enter into the very throne room of God. So it was a day of humility. And before entering the Holy of Holies, we hear, we read a, chap, a, a paragraph here about what, he, what the high priest wears so, for example, last week we talked a lot about the high priest's uniform. And remember he had that golden breastplate and it had the 12 stones, the precious stones representing the, the tribe. And his whole uniform was kind of a, a regal kingly uniform. But on this day, God says, no, take off the kingly uniform 
and you're going to put on just plain, holy garments. Your linen, sacred garments. Just simple attire. So the, whole, the clothing communicates humility. And then as he comes before the Lord, the entrance communicates humility. I want to stop on this part because as a reader, you might have flown by this. I feel like this is one of the coolest details in the story. Just try to picture this. So Leviticus 16, 12 to 13 says, speaking of the high priest about to enter, he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. So picture the scene here. Aaron, high priest, he's getting ready to go into the Holy of Holies. And he knows all the things we just talked about. He knows all of this. And in fact, he knows it acutely because just days ago, his sons were struck dead. Just days ago, he saw his, his son scorched on the floor because they didn't take the holiness of God seriously. And here he is standing at the curtain. And it's his job to go in. And so he's dressed in his humble attire. I'm sure he's frightened. But he's, he's been called in. Like God invited him in. So he's going to follow the instructions to the last minute detail. And he grabs the, the censer and he grabs some burning coals and he puts them in the censer. And then he grabs two handfuls of incense. And you can just imagine, he takes a deep breath. And then he opens up the curtain. And as he opens it, he throws in these two handfuls of incense. And a puff of fragrant smoke fills the room and is, is going up from over. And he's got the incense in front of him. And what's happening is this incense, this cloud of smoke is shielding him from seeing the glory of God over the ark. So he's walking before the, the very throne of God and the smoke is keeping him alive. And he's behind this smoke, and so then he's, he gets the bowl from the offerings, and he starts to do the ceremony, which we're going to unpack later. But the whole thing communicates this humility, that it is a tremendous privilege that Aaron gets to come before his holy God, that he's coming, before, he's coming into the king's throne room, the creator of heaven and earth, and he feels so unworthy. And all of these details communicate humility. Humility in the leadership, but then also in the people. If you flip ahead to the end, you don't need to, but in, in verse 31, we're told of all the people, it's to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you so that you may humble yourselves. It's a permanent statute. So the Day of Atonement was an annual reminder for the Israelites that God is holy and they are not. It was to remind them that there's nothing they could do in their own strength to bridge the gap. That's why they fasted. P.S., that's what fasting is all about. Fasting is a reminder for us that we are entirely dependent on the Lord. And on that day, God says, you're all going to fast. Nobody's eating anything. You just, you remind yourselves that, that you live because of me. I am your God and you are my people. Atonement's not to be taken lightly. And Christian, don't ever forget, it is a mind-blowing miracle that we get to talk to God. Right? As we read these Old Testament stories, let them remind us of this glorious truth. He is still that holy God. It is still a mind-blowing miracle that God dwells with us and that we're in relationship with him. The holy king of the universe, the king who sits on the throne, he clothed himself in human flesh and he came down to dwell with us. More than that, he condescended down to, to clothe himself in our sin and to bear it in his flesh on the cross. And he died for us. For what? To make atonement for us that we could be at one with our great God. 
It is a miracle. It's a miracle. We can never do anything to deserve it. And as we see that, as we understand this miracle of atonement, it demands humility. That's why God says, this is the one to whom I will look, the one who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. Some of you have been Christians for 30, 40 years. Let's just remind ourselves. Let's never lose sight of this amazing miracle that God has drawn near to us. It's amazing. That's our first lesson. We find our second lesson as we look to verse 14. So look with me now. Beginning in verse 14, we're going to read to the end of verse six, or 15. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull, and he'll sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So let's pause there. And actually, before we unpack what's happening here, I want to make a, our second point is very quick, but this is fundamental. See this. Atonement requires a substitute. The passage is filled with bulls and goats and rams, and we're going to unpack all of that. But first, we have to see this. Atonement demands a substitute. The penalty for sin is death. The Bible's clear about that. God was clear about that on day one. He told Adam and Eve not to dishonor him by eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he warned them. He said, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right, so God was clear. You shall surely die. That's the penalty for sin. And of course, we know that the penalty remains here in the New Testament. Romans 6.23, the Apostle Paul tells us, the wages of sin is death. The Israelites had sinned, therefore the Israelites deserved death. We have sinned, therefore we deserve death. Thus, the chasm, the great divide between us and God. The Bible is crystal clear about that problem. But what we see in this ceremony here in these opening pages of the Bible, is that God has made a gracious provision to restore us to himself. He's made an allowance for a substitute to stand in our place. The bulls and the goats that we're going to be discussing are standing in the place of the Israelites, absorbing the curse of the Israelites' sin. And so every single Israelite who's watching this ceremony walked away with this clear lesson that atonement demands a substitute. Now, that was brief. We're going to move on to the next one. But that is a fundamental lesson. What we're going to, the greatest impact of the Day of Atonement comes out of what happens to those substitutes. Right? What happens to the bull and these goats? That's where we learn our lesson. So let's continue reading now, looking in verse 16. And we're going to read all the way to the end of verse 19. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. Here we learn that atonement cleanses and restores. 
So we talked about these four animals. Let's get, get into it again. So the first animal, the bull, Aaron is killed for himself, for his own sins. And that's the first animal that he brings before the presence of God. So he goes through the whole ceremony. He's got the, the smoke. He goes before the Lord and he sprinkles the blood of this bull in the presence of God. He sprinkles it on the ark itself. He sprinkles it in the air as he goes out. He goes out and then he takes the goat. So remember, there were two goats and he rolled the dice. Do you remember that? One goat was set aside for the sin offering. So he takes that goat, set aside for the sin offering, and he he kills the goat and he takes the blood. Now this goat represents all the people of Israel. And he goes in with this blood and once again, he's got the incense going and he, he goes into the presence of God and he sprinkles the blood on the ark and in the air and he comes out. And then it tells us that he takes this blood and he sprinkles it around the tabernacle and he goes to the to the horns of the altar and he puts the blood on the horns of the altar. And we wonder, well, what is happening here? Why, why is he doing all of this? And it tells us it was, it was for cleansing. Now, here's the thing. As, as we read the Bible as 21st century Canadians, this cleansing piece is something that I don't think comes to us naturally. We don't see this at first glance. For example, when we think about Adam and Eve's sin, we think about how their sin impacted them. Naturally, right? Because of their sin, they were cast out of the garden. Because of their sin, they were put under a curse. That's what we think about. But we never stop to think about the fact that that curse was spread to the earth itself. And yet God said that. In Genesis 3.17, God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. Our sin has polluted the world, like the whole creation has been affected by our sin. An uncleanness has been introduced into the world. It's cursed, which is why a tornado dropped down into a city and destroyed houses in the middle of a beautiful week. It's why sometimes the sea goes past its borders and tsunamis crash into cities. It's why we have these heat waves and we see northern Ontario aflame. Something is broken, not just in ourselves relationally, but in the world itself. The Apostle Paul talks about, in Romans 8, about how the the earth groans beneath the curse of sin. This whole earth has been polluted by sin. That's, the Bible teaches that from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That's the truth. So what happens in the Day of Atonement? Well, the Day of Atonement addresses the problem that that curse of sin, that pollution spreads even to the tabernacle complex, even to the altar, even to the tent of meeting, even to the Holy of Holies. That pollution spreads. And so yet, here's the question. How then can our holy God dwell in the midst of this pollution? And to highlight the fact of the pollution, what do you, remember what the story that's alluded to in verse 1? The death of Nadab and Abihu. So the beginning of the Day of Atonement, its institution starts with God pointing back to those two dead priests lying in the tent of meeting who didn't take seriously the holy of God. How can the God of life live in a tent of meeting that's been defiled by death? How can our great, holy, sovereign God live in this tabernacle where sinful people come in day in and day out to make their sacrifices? The whole thing is polluted. Therefore, it needs to be cleansed. It needs to be purified. One commentator notes, the main purpose of the Day of Atonement ceremonies is to cleanse the sanctuary from the pollutions introduced into it by the unclean worshipers. Without a purpose such as this, there would have been little point in the high priest putting his life at risk by entering into the Holy of Holies. 
See, it was a dangerous thing for the high priest to enter into the throne room of God, but it was absolutely necessary. The tabernacle needed to be cleansed from the Holy of Holies, from the very center, and moving outward. Someone needed to to cleanse it. Someone needed to acknowledge that, God, we have polluted this world. We understand that. Our sin has polluted this, and, and you shouldn't be living in our pollution. And so here is our offering. Here is our substitute. Here is the cleansing blood. Somehow, some way, the blood of this goat is, is effective in your eyes to cleanse from our unrighteousness. You told us to do this, and we acknowledge, God, we have made a mess of this. For God to dwell in the midst of his people... The tabernacle and the priests and the people needed to be cleansed and restored from all the pollution that their sin had accumulated. And that principle is true, Old Testament and new. If we're going to be at one with God, we need more than just forgiveness. Now, we're going to talk about forgiveness, but can you imagine living in a world where where God had only offered forgiveness? Said, you deserve death, but I'll accept this substitute and I won't smite you. But that doesn't solve the problem because even though I'm not smited, I'm still far from God. I'm still unclean. I'm still unworthy to be with him. There's still distance. So what did we need? We needed forgiveness, but we also needed cleansing. Well, what could do that? What could wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what we mean when we sing that song. Right, the blood of goats. Why was the blood of this goat effective? Because it pointed forward to Christ. It was preparing the Israelites to see and to declare, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus died as your substitute, he died so that you could be clean, Christian. And now, having been sprinkled by the blood of our perfect substitute, God himself dwells in you. The Apostle Paul writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He said that to the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth, it was the messiest, most disorganized, dysfunctional, messed up church. And he said to that church, Do you not know? You're the temple of God. God's spirit dwells in you. In Galatians 4, 6, he says to individual Christians, because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God lives in us because we've been cleaned. And the day of atonement prepared us to see that and to savor that. Now, as we move forward, our next lesson we find beginning in verse 20. This is a larger chunk, so read this with me. Beginning in verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place, and he shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. 
And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward, he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood have been brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their, their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward, he may come into the camp. That's a lot of ground to cover. We can summarize it with this one point, though. Atonement removes our sin. Atonement removes our sin. So let's go back to these four animals, right? We want to understand what's happened. The bull has been offered for Aaron's sin. It was brought into the Holy of Holies. The blood was sprinkled. So we're done with that. The goat, one of the goats that was set aside for the sin offering, it was slain and its blood was, was offered in the Holy of Holies and it cleansed the tabernacle. So we're done with that goat. But now there's another goat and this goat was to remain alive. And this goat was to be sent to Azazel. Which begs the question, what on earth is Azazel? What is that? If you've got an NIV Bible today, anybody bring an NIV Bible? Nobody? Okay, one person. Yeah, so yours says the scapegoat, right? So the scapegoat. There's, if you've got a study Bible, anybody got a study Bible here? Yeah, so if you've got a study Bible, I imagine you could look under and there'd be a little footnote and it would talk about what is Azazel? What does this mean? There are three options and I don't want to dive into these too deeply because it's a bit of a bunny trail. But one option is that Azazel is like a name for the devil, a name for, for, or a demon. And so the idea is the goat bearing the sin was sent away to the demonic, you know, to go back to where it belongs. That's one option. Another option is Azazel is like a compound word, which Az is to go out and Zazel, the goat. So it's the going out goat, the scapegoat, as the NIV uses. Another option is that Azazel just means destruction. So you put your sin on the goat and you send it to destruction. Here's the thing. Whichever of those three options it is, it, it doesn't matter because it ultimately lands in the same place. And so we're not going to get too bogged down in that. One commentator says, helpfully and rightly, I'd say, the overall function of the goat remains clear to make atonement on the Israelites' behalf by bearing their sins far away. That is the point that this object lesson so clearly makes. So now let's, let's immerse ourselves back into the scene and think about this. If you were reading closely in that first section, all of those offerings that were made in the Holy of Holies, and then even when he came out and he made the offerings in the tabernacle complex, the Bible is clear that nobody was to be there with him, which makes sense because he's cleansing from our sins. So you wouldn't want a bunch of sinners making a mess as he's in there cleaning. So nobody's in there watching Aaron perform these sacrifices. So you got people standing outside the tabernacle wondering, like, what does this all mean? Am I clean? Do I have a relationship with God? And so God in his mercy adds this extra piece of the ceremony, this piece of the ceremony that the whole tribe would see. And he says, I want you to take this other goat and I want you to lay your hand on it in the presence of all the people. So everybody's looking in like this and you put your hand on it and you confess all the sins of the people. And so, I'm, I, you know, I don't imagine he's doing it one by one, you know, like forgive Solomon for his bad attitude. No, you have a great attitude. But, you know, like naming off the sins of the camp. This is probably like a general uh, lifting up, acknowledging all the sins of the people. And everybody's watching him. They see his lips moving. And then the goat bearing the sins of the Israelites is taken out of the camp by a man who's ready. So this is, there's a man whose only job is to take this goat far away. And so he goes and everybody watches and he walks and walks and walks until you can't see him anymore. And eventually he disappears over the horizon. And everybody in the camp gets it, right? That was our sin. And there it goes. 
our sin is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. In fact, that song that we sing, it's from the Psalms. That's an Old Testament song. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's, that's the song they're singing as they watch this go. And in that, you can just see the mercy of God. And I want to press this in because I would say that the Israelites aren't the only ones who needed to see that. We do too. Some of you struggle mightily to see this piece of the atonement puzzle. I think theologically, intellectually, you get it. My sin has been removed. You get that. And yet, for whatever reason, you can't accept it, right? You can't live in that. You can't feel that and delight in that. And yet, it is true. Christian, your sin is gone. The scapegoat has disappeared over the horizon. All your sin was on him. It's been paid for. It's been banished. In God's eyes, it is absolutely, positively, beyond the shadow of a doubt, gone. You are meant to see that, right? God knows our weakness. He knows we struggle with that. So for the Israelites, he said, watch this goat. You don't get it? Watch the goat. Watch him disappear. That's what happened to your sin. Believe that. He gave us something better than a goat, didn't he? He gave us his own son. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. God says, look to my son and know that your sin is gone. You don't believe me? Listen to him as he hangs on the cross. What did he say? It is finished. It's finished. It's gone. God seeing us in our weakness says, you know what you need, Christians? I'm going to institute a ceremony. I want you to come to this table and I want you to break the the bread and remember that this was his body broken for you. I want you to take the cup and remember this is his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And I want you to taste it. Then I want you to drink it. And I want you to do this as often as you come together in remembrance of me, that you would know that your sin is gone. And it is so hard for us to, to live in that. Christian, believe it. Rest in it. He wants you to look and to know in your heart that the substitute was enough, that Christ is enough, that forgiveness has been purchased for you. And before we conclude, we're going to read this last section, and I want to conclude on this most important note. Beginning in verse 29, it says this, And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month and on the tenth day of the month you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It's a Sabbath of solemn rest to you. And you shall afflict yourselves. It's a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing those holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for this tent of meeting, for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests, for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. He did as the Lord commanded Moses. Here's our final point. So important that you see this. Atonement is initiated by God. Atonement is initiated by God. 
He did as the Lord commanded. He didn't do his own plan, his own strategy. If you go back to the, the beginning of our text, it doesn't begin with Moses and Aaron sitting together saying, what can we do? How can we, how can we make peace with God? What kind of plan can we put? What if we kill some goats? Moses, that might work. You put your hand on it. No. Our passage today begins with God speaking to Aaron and Moses and saying, this is how Aaron is going to enter. Old Testament and New, our God is the God who goes first. Now listen, while it's true that God is wrathful towards our sin, that is true, it's also true that he is proactive in making a way for sinners to be cleansed and redeemed. God does that. He delights to do that. We've unpacked some details today, highlighting the holiness of God and the severity of sin. But as we see all of that, we need to resolve to hold it in unison with this glorious truth. Our God is love. And his holiness and his love are not in opposition to each other. God doesn't have a personality disorder. It's not like one day he's like, I'm the holy God, and the other day I'm the love God. No, there's a doctrine called the simplicity of God, which means that God is always all of who he is. So when you see his holiness, you also see his love, and vice versa. He is a holy love. And that's what we see in this ceremony. His love is a purifying love. It doesn't leave us in our sin. His love is the kind of love that picks us up right out of the mess, out of the muck. It doesn't lie about all the destruction we've caused. His love doesn't lie about the way that we've hurt other people, the way that we've ruined the world, the way that we've sinned against our God. He, he meets us in that mess. And then at great cost to himself, he cleans us with the blood of his son, washing away all of that sin, all of that mess. And then he goes back and he settles our debt, all of the debts we've accumulated the penalty for sin is death, of course. He pays that for us. And then he, and he sets us over here with himself, at one, with God. That is the grand story of the Bible. And it is the grand mystery of the Bible. See, have you ever thought about the fact that atonement is a great mystery? It's not a mystery on our end. I understand why we want atonement. God is awesome. God is holy and glorious and good, and I want to be with him. That's not a mystery. Here's the mystery. I am not awesome, and neither are you, and yet God wants to be with us. The older I get, the more I come to know myself, the more I see the sin that lingers in my heart, the rebellion that bubbles up, the more I see the way that I hurt other people, the more I find myself marveling with David. When I look at your heavens, he says, the work of your fingers, O oh God, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Right, David says, I don't get it. It is a mystery to me why you want to make at one mint with people like me. And yet in spite of our smallness, we're made in the image of God and he loves us. In spite of our unworthiness, in spite of our hearts that are prone to rebellion, in spite of all the times we've sinned against him, our God is still proactive in bringing sinners home. Atonement's not something we do. That's one of the fundamental differences between Christianity and everything else the world has to offer. We can't bridge this chasm between us and God. You can't build a bridge you can't build a ladder to heaven. You can't earn his love with your righteousness. You can't pay off your debt with your own merits. You can't. We cannot do it, but God has done it for us. 
Hallelujah. He initiates. He draws. He makes a way. He leaves the 99 to go after the one. Don't ever lose the glory of that. It's glorious. We need to be so moved by that because we got to go into the world and tell our neighbors. They don't know that yet. It's amazing news. We got to tell them. The story doesn't begin with Moses and Aaron saying, how do we go to this holy God? It begins with our holy God saying, this is how you can draw near. So come. He says the same thing to us today. God has made a way for you to come home. He sent his own son to be your substitute. Jesus died so that you could live. Jesus absorbed all of the sin that should separate you from God. He took it in his body on the cross. He paid for it in full. His blood was shed so that you could be washed clean. The way has been made. So do you feel far from God? You don't have to. Come. Do you feel broken? Do you feel dirty? you feel like you can't be clean? You don't have to. Come. There is nothing else in the world that is more important than this. I mean this with all my heart. There's nothing else in the world more important than this. God has made atonement for you. For you. Not just in general, but for you. For you. For you. So come. Come. Come in humility. Come in faith. Come in repentance. Come in wonder and delight and joy. Come and look to Jesus who has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west and who has washed you as white as snow. The Bible ends with this invitation. The spirit and the bride say come. The bride is the church. So the spirit and the church, the people of God are saying to you, come. Let the one who hears say come. Let the one who is thirsty come. The one who desires to take the water of life without price. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I am pleading with you today that you would press this into our hearts. I'm pleading with you today that, that somehow, some way, in spite of cars flying by and distractions and the hot sun beating on our necks, that you would just open our eyes, soften our hearts, Speak to us in this moment. Let us see the blood sprinkled on the altar, making us clean. Let us see the goat walking over the horizon and realize that our sin is just, it's gone in your eyes. It's not gone in our eyes. We see it. Every day we see it, God. But it's gone in your eyes. Lord Jesus, thank you that you died to make us clean, that you died to forgive us of our sins, that you died to bring us home. We will never, ever, ever fathom the depth of what you have done for us. But I pray that today you would move us one degree closer. I pray that today the, that person sitting and feeling unforgiven would feel forgiven. I pray that the person feeling unclean, thinking back to all the wicked things they've done, maybe even this week, that they would feel clean. And for the person who hasn't put their trust in Jesus, who maybe has never heard this before, I pray that you would open their eyes and they would run to you and they would cry out in faith that they turn away from their sin and they'd say, I need Jesus because you are there with arms wide open. Save lost sinners today, God. That's what you do. We plead for it. We ask for it in faith. And we thank you, God, that you go first. You draw. And I know that today, if you're drawing someone, nothing else will get in the way. If you're drawing someone home, they will come. So let your invitation go forth, God, and bring them home, I pray. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.
worship team, would you lead us?